So we're going through church history. We've, uh, we're wrapping up now the second century. So we're finally coming to the end of that. A lot of things have happened, and we're getting ready to kind of move on into the third century of early church history. Um, before we move into the third century, I really felt there was one final thing we need to deal with. We've talked about the heretics of the second century. We've talked about the early church fathers, um, the apostolic fathers. We've talked about... Uh, some of the divisions that occurred, uh, the persecutions, and so forth. There's one final development that I really felt is pretty important. Um, it didn't really fit into, at least in the way that I had it out, it hadn't really, didn't really have a good fit in the chronology, per se. Um, so this is a little bit parenthetical, but we kind of have to deal with it, especially before we really move on to the third century. So I want to do that today. Um, and just kind of let you know, uh, as a way of note, I probably don't have as many primary sources today to look at. I'm really leaning heavily on uh, two guys, Philip Schaft, um, who's kind of a classic authority on the early church fathers, and then also Frank James. Uh, some of the bibliographies I've handed you out before kind of have both those guys in there. Definitely encourage you guys to check them out. They're really good sources. But uh, what I'm going to try to do today is kind of quickly summarize the, the topic kind of quickly summarize what's going on, and then um, it, it should be fairly brief. It will be kind of heavy on the information, but it's kind of view it as preparatory for some of the things that we look at. So again, as I've been saying all along the way, um, this is probably also one of those topics that you may want to sort of leave a mental bookmark in, um, uh, since it's going to be pertinent to some, some future things. So, uh, so that being said, there's this uh, there's a development in the second century, especially in the, the church in North Africa. Um, reality was that even at this time, uh, Christianity wasn't monolithic all across the Roman Empire. It's going to take on different uh, colors, different um, shades. It's going to look a little bit different in slightly different ways in different places. So there's this one development that happened in North Africa. And uh, it's going to bear heavily on some of the people and the ideas that we meet in the third century. It's definitely very influential. And um, to kind of, before we get into that development itself, it's probably helpful for us to kind of think back and sort of review some of the people that we've already met in, in the second century. So if you remember the guy Justin Martyr, we talked about him early on. Uh, Justin Martyr, he was a second century apologist. Um, he's a guy who wrote a defense of Christianity. He's probably the most famous representative of really a group of guys that are typically referred to as the apologists or sometimes the Greek apologists. Um, that, that group includes some other names that we, that we talked about. There was Aristides, Athenagoras, Theophilus, a few others. Um, we met Justin several weeks ago and kind of talked about him. What these guys were is they were effectively guys who attempted to write rational arguments to give a defense of Christianity to secular, unbelieving authorities. Might be authorities who were persecuting the church, or maybe they were just authorities who were condoning persecution, uh, kind of just uh, turning a blind eye to it, whatever it may be. Uh, but what's important about these guys, these, uh, these apologists who are writing to them, is they're not really theologians. Um, they're more like philosophers. And in fact, that, that's their background. What it seems like from the little that we know about these men is that they actually started out, many of them, started out as philosophers. And then in the pursuit of truth through philosophy, so to speak, they encountered 
Christianity and converted to Christianity. So then they become Christians, and now they're using philosophy, uh, rational, um, sort of Greek rational arguments, so to speak, to kind of defend Christianity to people who are uh, attacking it. Now, as philosophers turn Christian, as you might expect, they carried a lot of their Greek philosophy with them into their Christian belief, especially Platonism, perhaps the highest, most respected school of philosophical thought in the Roman Empire at this time would be Plato. Um, very, very influential. And so a lot of these guys were definitely very overtly platonic in the way they thought about things. And that kind of makes a little bit of sense. Um, if you think about Platonism and Christianity, there are some similarities. Uh, Christianity, for example, believes in a supreme being called God. And what Plato did too, he effectively believed in the, the good, uh, being from whom all creation had its source. Uh, Christianity also believes that mankind is composed of both a body and a soul. And Platonism basically agrees with that. There's, there's two aspects of the human being there. And then Christianity, another, another sort of parallel is that Christianity argues that mankind is, is bound by sin in a state of depravity. Uh, Platonism uh, holds a parallel or similar position that kind of views mankind as being sort of shackled in ignorant passions and needing to be sort of liberated by divine knowledge. So you can see how for a lot of early Christians, especially if they came from a philosophical background, they would kind of see those things as running parallel to each other. So really to make a long story short, what we get from the Platonic philosophers becoming Christians, um, this apologist school of Christian thought, we can pretty much, pretty much get a, a, an influence on Christianity which, can, which kind of results in a school of thought that can really be called Christian Platonism. And by the way, this school still exists today. There's a lot of, uh, there are Christians out there today who argue for what they call Christian Platonism. And kind of to, to sweeten the deal between this relationship, so to speak, between Plato and the philosophers and Christianity, is that in early, in, in second century, uh, the Hellenistic world, Plato and the other philosophers uh, were highly respected. Christianity was not. And so this kind of offered Christianity some much uh, needed respect as they felt today. So that kind of helped sweeten the deal there. The other thing that kind of came out of this whole relationship is that, uh, the church began, or at least the members of the church um, began to begin to view uh, Greek philosophy as being a helpful tool by which they could better understand scripture, uh, Christian scripture and Christian doctrine. And that began to have an influence on Christian thought in the second century. I'm going to get a little bit more practical. If you look at that map over there, there's a uh, uh, Africa. We're going to move over to uh, the city of Alexandria. I want to focus on that just real quickly here. Uh, so up here in North Africa, we have the city of Alexandria. I want to focus on that a little bit because Alexandria plays a really kind of a really key uh, part in this whole story here. Alexandria is a um, 
It's kind of the philosophical, the philosophical capital of the Roman Empire in the second century. It was a very liberal city. Um, it was also an educational center. The um, it, it was where really it was kind of a place where a lot of different cultures and a lot of different people went to, and kind of they really valued scientific learning and philosophy. If you were a philosopher in the second century, this would be a really key place for you to want to um, set up a school. People were open, people were going there to kind of think about and, and digest a lot of the ideas that were kind of in currency then. Uh, Alexandria was known for a generally open and liberal attitude. Uh, there was a very diverse array of ideas and religions there. It was also quite generally speaking, uh, not without exception, but generally speaking it was uh, kind of tolerant. Um, of these various groups and religions that went there. It was also tolerance of this practice of, of syncretizing religion and philosophy. Um, if you remember, we had a whole uh, class on the Gnostics. You may remember Valentinus, one of the chief Gnostics, had uh, some pretty crazy ideas. He wasn't really from Alexandria, but he was really active, and Gnosticism was very popular, in fact, in the city of Alexandria. There was also some other prominent philosophers in Alexandria. At the time, there was a, uh, a famous Jewish philosopher named Philo. You may have heard of him. And he did a similar thing as far as syncretism goes. He kind of syncretized uh, Judaism with Greek philosophy. And he was very, a very Hellenized Jew in a lot of respects. Um, the Gnostics themselves were also highly influenced by Plato. Now, they... They kind of took Plato and the other philosophers and, and merged it with Christianity and went off on some wild tangents. But Plato was a key influence on them as well, as well as some of the other classical philosophers. Now, what we know about Alexandria is that sometime, perhaps in either the middle part uh, or early part of the second century, Christianity took root there and a church was, was born. We don't really know what all the details were, um, how it got started. There's some early church tradition that Mark may have been involved. We don't know if that's true or not, but um, it's kind of shrouded in a little bit of that historical mystery. But by the end, we know very clearly that by the late 2nd century, there is an established church with the bishop and elders. We also find something else there. It's very, very unique to Alexandria. In Alexandria, alongside of the church, there was also a seminary. So to speak. Or at least that's what uh, Dr. James, uh, the professor at RTS, calls it. He, he thinks of it as perhaps the first theological seminary in history. Really, more properly, what it was, it, it was what we call a catechetical school. So it's a school of sort of oral instruction for uh, young believers. And um, what's unique about this is none of the other churches, to our knowledge, none of the other churches in the other cities at this time would have had one of these. This was an institution that the Church of Alexandria set up, but was kind of, it wasn't really the church. It was actually a, a real school, so to speak. How did it get started? Um, it appears that, consistent with the context of Alexandria, if you think about it, there's Alexandria is this educational center. It's a place where teachers go, um, especially people who are inter interested in philosophy. They set up schools. People go there and become pupils. They join these schools. In this kind of context, it seems that the church most likely said, well, let's set up a school for new believers 
kind of like the other schools, and this will instruct those new believers to, to prepare them for baptism. That's kind of how it started. And it also appears that it wasn't just for new believers, but it was also for seekers. So people who might not necessarily believe yet, but are interested in the gospel, they could go to the school and ask questions and get their questions answered. So it's a very, uh, if you, you can kind of imagine a, uh, a discovery Bible study, I don't know if you've heard of that before, where you have people who maybe don't believe yet, but they're all here because they're interested in Christianity and they want to learn about it. So that's how it began. And then eventually this, this catechetical school in Alexandria did evolve into like a center for advanced Christian instruction and really what we could call a seminary. And that would probably be more like um, once you're into the third century, the very end of the second century when that, was, when that actually happened. But it began as sort of a, a school of basic instruction. There were some key people who were involved in this school. Uh, the first one that we really know much about uh, is a man by the name of Clement. And uh, Clement was born, we believe, most likely in Athens. That's what Philip, where Philip Schaap uh, argues that he was probably born. Um, but he didn't stay there. What Clement, happened to Clement is basically, he's born uh, in a city of basically the hometown of the philosophers. And he grows up, and at some point in his life, he, he becomes deeply thirsty to find and know truth. And so he starts a journey, a philosophical journey. It turns into a spiritual journey. And basically the way you did that back then, if you wanted to learn philosophy, or if you were a seeker of truth, is you found a master philosopher. You would go find someone, you'd attach yourself to him, kind of like a, a, an apprentice to a master, and he would teach you everything he knew, so to speak. So that's what Clement did. That's at least how he started. But it appears that he was repeatedly disappointed. He was repeatedly disillusioned with what he was getting. So he, he went from one master to the next, and he went from one place to the next. He traveled all over the Roman Empire. So finally he ends up in Alexandria. Pretty much never really finding what he's looking for until he gets to Alexandria, and in Alexandria he meets a guy by the name of Pontanus. We know very little about Pontanus, except that Pontanus was a Christian, apparently a Christian philosopher, and the head of the catechetical school there in Alexandria. And what he does is he leads Clement to uh, faith in Christ. Um, Clement joins the school. He becomes Pontanus's assistant. And by the end of the second century, Clement uh, ends up succeeding Pontanus, and Clement is the head of the catechetical school there. And of course, Clement is known to history as Clement of Alexandria. So we learned about Clement of Rome, a completely different guy, uh, much earlier. This is Clement of Alexandria, the early church father. <clears throat> Any questions here before we go? There's a particular, a peculiar kind of theology that ends up coming out of the Alexandrian school of um, um, seminary, school of, of Christian instruction. Uh, the chief characteristic, as you would expect, is that um, 
it's really heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, by Platonism and Stoicism and other, other such uh, philosophies. Clement of Alexandria believed that to bring mankind to the truth, God had basically given two things. One was revelation, and the other was philosophy. Now, Clement argued rather strongly that revelation was superior, but the former was the better one. But uh, philosophy, according to him, was still helpful. It's, he's very clear. He, uh, for, for, for Clement, revelation in apostolic scriptures is the way a person is initiated in faith and can obtain salvation. Um, however, for him also, philosophy and scientific inquiry are still important tools for the Christian to attain to a higher, deeper, more mature, you could say more perfect knowledge and virtue in the faith. Uh, so the goal for Alex, uh, for Clement, I'm sorry, Clement, and then some of his successors, is to become what they call a true Gnostic. Now, they are definitely influenced by the Gnostics. It seems like all the evidence that we can see in, in history is that these, the, the school at Alexandria, had some Gnostic influence in the way that they thought, the way they saw things. Now they departed from the chief Gnostics like Valentinus and. Uh, Basilides departed from them in some key respects. Some of the most offensive claims of the Gnostics, um, they, the, the school at Alexandria rejected. Clement rejected and his successor rejected. Um, so, for example, the Gnostics argued that the creator of the world, the God of the Old Testament, was not really the highest God. He was this lower demiurge, and there's this greater good above him. The school at Alexandria did not buy that. They totally rejected that. They stayed pretty close to orthodoxy on a lot of things in Alexandria. But they still bought this idea that in addition to faith, in addition to revelation, you still, the Christians still should look for this higher, deeper, um, this higher, deeper knowledge. So that was very much a, a Gnostic influence on those guys in Alexandria. So when Clement and uh, others after him talk about the true Gnostic, so the quote-unquote true Gnostic, they aren't really talking about people who go after you know, Valentinus and some of the fairy, ta fairy tales that he um, propounded. Um, and it wasn't so much, at least for Clement, it wasn't so much the idea that faith, uh, or that philosophy supersedes faith, uh, but rather that it becomes an important tool to exegete and better understand the scriptures that, that God has given. Um, the end result, you could say, is that with respect to some of the most essential truths about God, about his son Jesus, um, Clement is based, at least, is basically orthodox. He submits to scripture. Outside of that, though, he does have a tendency to kind of speculate, um, just typical philosophy. Uh, he, and as a result, uh, it does tend to lean more and more platonic in a lot of ways. Now, Clement is not really himself... He's generally not seen as enormously influenced on the church worldwide, worldwide in his own time. But what he does do is he eventually goes on to have a pupil that he does influence who is named Origen. And Origen, in the third century, that will meet him, he's actually very influential, has a, has a, becomes very famous, and has some significant, uh, uh, has a, a significant part to play in, in that part of church history. In total, really, the combined influence of the Greek apologists, uh, the catechetical school of Alexandria, really kind of, and possibly some other 
uh, factors as well. They all led uh, many people in the early church in the second century and the third century to come to kind of begin more and more to consult the wisdom of the philosophers as they went on their quest to understand the doctrines of God and the gospel as they're explained in scripture. And so it, became, it began to be a trend. And, and some places this trend was stronger, other places it was weaker. Really, this trend towards Greek philosophy in Christian theology had its proponents and its opponents. Um, toward the end of the second century, there's another guy, he's a Roman lawyer, and his name is Tertullian. He gets converted to Christianity. He becomes, uh, he enters the church, he takes it very seriously, he becomes an elder. I have one source that says he's a bishop, and one source said that he didn't become a bishop, so I'm not sure about that. But um, just by way of preview, Tertullian and Origen are two of the most influential uh, theologians of the third century, but they're also two of the most controversial, possibly the two most controversial. But they're each controversial in, in very different ways. They're, they take entirely different approaches and kind of go different directions. Tertullian was not an, an admirer of the Alexandrian school's uh, tendency toward Greek philosophy. He was very much against it. In one of his book, books, he wrote a very, very famous line uh, that basically set out his, his opinion on this. And he says this, quote, What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Away with all the attempts to produce a model of Christianity, a Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. So Tertullian was just outright against it. He's like, let's separate these. These things don't really have anything to do with each other. So in the next century, when we, we as we get into the third century in our coming uh, classes, we're going to meet Tertullian, we're going to meet Origen, and several others. Um, well, what we're going to do before that, I do need to take a, a bit of an inter intermission. So today we're going to we'll be our last uh, Bible quipping hour on early church history for at least several weeks. We'll probably try to start up again uh, maybe mid-October, late October, um, I guess, depending on how the timing works out. Uh, there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, the first one is simply because Tertullian and Origen are they're big guys, and they're complex, and they got a lot of material. And I'm not ready to really teach on them yet. Um, I need some time, actually, to, to read up and, and, and get prepared for that. Um, the other reason is I also have some uh, personal goals that have kind of been on the back burner while I've been doing this course. So, But they have a, an exploration date on them, so I need to probably work on those things a bit, too. So we are going to take a break for several weeks and then come back um, in October, hopefully. Uh, and hopefully then it'll... Be a good, I'm hoping this will be a good place to kind of take that break because we're moving from one century to the next, and hopefully we can get to the next century um, uh, well prepared. So, um, so today's lesson, I'm going to confess, it has been it's been kind of heavy on the information, um, but I did want to leave you guys with one uh, key biblical encouragement to take away. I think one obvious overarching fact about the second century, and this isn't. So much related to what we're talking about today, but I think it's just as a summary of the whole second century that we're looking at. The overarching fact that stands out to me is that the second century church had a very strong commitment to the apostolic scriptures, regardless of who you're talking about. Um, the terms Old Testament and New Testament apparently were both coined in the second century. 
Um, even though the New Testament was still not fully uh, identified, it wasn't officially drawn out, they didn't have an official statement, the church didn't have an official statement saying these are the books, these are the 27 books yet, they had a concept of what it was. They largely agreed on it, and they had this concept of the New Testament. That, that term, New Testament, was actually used in the second century. The early church did clearly believe that the law and the prophets inherited from the Jews were scripture, and they also held that the writings of the apostles along with the Gospels of Mark and Luke were authoritative that Holy Spirit. Um, they used, we, we can see this because the church used these scriptures for preaching, for teaching, for refuting their opponents in debates. Um, and, and even where you get these experimental theologians <coughs> like Clement and Origen to come, uh, what you see is that they were willing to use, while they were willing to use and consult philosophy, they still saw scripture as superior. They still argued that scripture was the authority. So you can, and we, we may, I definitely will find some faults with some of their hermeneutics, the way that they approach scripture, but it still remains a fact that they, they considered revelation authoritative. We're also really, I think we're, we're partly indebted to Clement of Alexandria because um, he quoted so much scripture at such an early date that we know that certain books are authentic, books like the Gospel of John. Uh, later on in history, there are critics who come along and try to argue that John was this uh, later anachronistic forgery. Um, it's pretty untenable when you see guys like Clement and Irenaeus this early on quoting the Gospel of John all over the place. Uh, it's pretty untenable. So even guys like who, who, who get um, a little experimental, so to speak, there are actually some really good proof that the books are authentic um, that we have. And, and I think this, the second century church's commitment to these books is, is also consistent with what Christ prophesied uh, in the Gospel of John. Let's turn the Bibles real quick to uh, John 17. John 17, we're going to read uh, verses 6 through 8. This is Jesus praying to his Father, and he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. That's the apostles. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sinned. Now go ahead and look down at verse 20. He's still praying to his father, and he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The church believed very, very strongly in, in, this, in these words here, in this idea that the apostles were God's chosen special messengers. And they treated the writings of the apostles as really the ultimate authority. They didn't have the term sola, sola scriptura yet, but they had that concept, and that's what they believed. It's very clear. Um, again, uh, even the most experimental of them believe that. Their hermeneutic may have been questionable, but they had the strong conviction that the Word of God was the authority. And that's what they moved into. They, they moved from the second century into the third century believing and became really the guide for That's really all I have for today's lesson. Um, we have maybe a few minutes.
if there is anything, whether today was this class or not, um, anything about the second century you might have a question about, or if there's anything that you wished I would have covered that I might that might not have covered, um, 